don't know if you heard the story, but uh, up in L.A., it was a fr- Friday, just like today, it was 5 p.m., so crowded, uh, as you can imagine, and there was a, the city bus that was jam-packed. There was a blind man uh, that was trying to get on the city bus, and so he gets on the city bus, and every seat is taken. Every seat is taken, and if you've flown Southwest Airlines, you know how everybody goes when you can pick a seat. It's like all, automatically you have something important to do. Head goes down, and you're super focused on that because you don't want to make eye contact with that person coming down the aisle. So same thing is happening. Nobody wants to move for this blind man to have a seat. So after you know a minute or so of trying to figure out a seat and not having one, uh, one kind gentleman finally got up and gave his seat. And when that man gave his seat, everybody just gasped, gasped. They were how dare him? Why would he do that? And it, it, it was a weird situation because here's one guy that finally was kind. Nobody else wanted to give the, the blind man the time of day to give him a seat. One kind man gave him a seat, and everybody had a problem with that. They're frustrated with it. Well, the bus uh, got ready to go, and before it could get to the next light, five, six police cars swarmed the bus. Police officers jump on the bus, and they arrest this man that had given up his seat. And so everybody cheered because the man got arrested and they were happy, and it was just such a bizarre situation. But then after a while, uh, the bus kept going and everything was fine, and the man that gave up his seat, who happened to be the bus driver, went to jail. (laughs) There you go. All right. I just have to wait for a few delayed laughs. You see, because if you hear that story, you're like, what's the problem? Man gave up his seat, great, bravo, somebody should have done it. But it's a problem if the man that gave up his seat to the blind man is a bus driver. Well, now you're putting everybody else in danger. So it goes from being a good situation to a terrible, terrible problem. But see, you wouldn't know that if you just heard that a man got arrested for giving up his seat. The whole point in that story is for you to understand and, and get the whole context of the story. Because if you get the whole context of the story, it allows you to understand what exactly happened. It allows you to grasp what actually went on as opposed to you reading into the situation based on just the limited amount of information that you have. And so oftentimes when we read scripture, we don't always know the context, the who, the what, the when, the where, the why in the purpose of the letter or the purpose of that book, and we oftentimes read into the situation based on what's going on in our current world. And so it's important as we go through the book of Ephesians, and we want to get the most out of Ephesians, and we want to study it well and understand exactly what God meant for us to understand about the book of Ephesians. It's important for us to understand the entire context of the book. And so I want to take this opportunity as we look at the first two verses, which will address verse one, the authorship of it, to go over the entire book of Ephesians. And if you've been with me in Adult Bible Fellowship here on Sunday morning, then this is nothing new to you. We do flyovers over every book of the Bible, uh, but we're going to do a flyover of the book of Ephesians. And my goal for this flyover is to give you the broad picture, almost like if you're flying in an airplane, you can see the whole canvas of what's under you. And you can understand it a little bit better as opposed to if you're driving down the street. You don't really get to see everything that's around you. And so this will give us a better understanding of the book. And as we read passage or uh, section by section, it will give us a good understanding of the big storyline of the book of Ephesians and help us to glean more as we study it. So let's talk about the city first, the city of Ephesus. It's important to know 
what this city was all about. Because, again, if you don't know what the city is about, then the tendency is to, go, is to think, hey, it's just like Orange County. It's not like Orange County, right? Uh, well, similar in some, some ways, but not like Orange County. Um, but we need to know about the city that this was written to. And the first thing we need to understand is it was the capital of Asia Minor, second most important city in the Roman Empire. So you see this Roman Empire is huge. This, this map up here will show you that. And you see where Ephesus is located. It's a port city. It's right there on the water. And so it connected many trade routes. And so this was a transient city that many people came to, to make money, to build connections, all of those things. But it was right there on the water. And this was the capital of uh, Asia Minor. And it was the second most important city. The most important city in the Roman Empire? Rome. Uh, but outside of that, Ephesus was the place to be, very wealthy city, a lot of money there, a lot of people uh, that had, you know, money, riches, had slaves back then um, that they uh, had at their own home, very wealthy city, about a half million people there, 500,000 people um, there, and to put that to, into perspective, you think about Irvine, Irvine has 300,000 people, and so we're almost doubling the size of Irvine by population in the city of Ephesus. And so this is a major city, uh, very populated city. Here's another important uh, aspect that Paul teases at with some of his language is this, we, we, I have it here as religious pluralism, which means the variety of religions there, over 50, matter of fact, in the city. And so you, bring, you have all these people coming from all these different backgrounds, and again, they're bringing their religion there. And so you have uh, Greek religion there, Greek goddesses and Greek gods there. You have Egyptian uh, religion there. You have tons of religions all throughout the city. And also, there's a lot of magical practices going on. Matter of fact, this was the center, the, the hub for all magical practices. If you remember in our um, weekend service, we uh, a few weeks ago, I guess it was earlier in the summer, went through Acts 19 where we were listening and, and hearing Pastor Mike preach on the sons of Sceva. Right, and you remember these sons of Sceva, they had, Paul was coming into town, and then you had these Jewish exorcists that are trying to draw out the demons. And uh, what I love about that passage is the evil spirits, the demons go like, uh, I know who Jesus is. I recognize Paul, but who in the world are you trying to call me out? And then they jumped on the guys uh, right, right after that. And so you have all these magicians that are there uh, within the city too, major religions, magicians all throughout the city of Ephesus. But in many gods and goddesses. Um, so many deities, right? Greek gods, you got, the, you know, they're worshiping Zeus there. Uh, you got the sun god, Ra, they're worshiping the magician, uh, Egyptian gods. All of that is right here in this one city of Ephesus where Christianity is now during this time. But the, the biggest and the baddest and the most popular, of course, is Artemis of the Ephesians, right? Artemis of the Ephesians. This is the, 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 the one, the god, the goddess that caused the big riot there. This is the goddess that everybody's coming there for, that, you know, the, the, Paul's in the tent making business because a lot of people are coming there because they're, they're buying tents, they're trying to stay there, they're buying shrines and all of these things to worship the goddess Artemis of the Ephesians or called Diana. But here you see her right here, weird thing um, that they're worshiping, but this was what everybody knew about and what everybody, the primary means of worship in Ephesus at the time. 
But if we look at what made Ephesus famous, it was this, this temple of Artemis, or temple, temple of Diana. In this place, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world was massive, this temple. And so if you see the size of this, uh, lengthwise, it was bigger than the, a football field. So a football field, take the end zones too, was about 325 feet. Well, this is about 400, well, I think three, 325 maybe, uh, 425 feet long, right? Bigger than a football field is how long this thing is. You see those columns. They had 127 of them wrapped around the building. Just, again, to compare the Lincoln Memorial, we look at that and say, wow, that is huge. Those columns are just 44 feet tall. The columns at the Temple of Artemis, 60 feet tall, 127 wrapped around. So you can just imagine how massive this building is and how massive this place is where people go to worship. It was placed right in the center of Ephesus. But if you think about it now, it's all destroyed, and this is all that's left. If you go there now, this is all that's left of that massive temple. And the rest of the, the artifacts are in the British Museum. But this is it. This is the one thing that they said would never die. This is what we're going to worship. This is what we're going to bet our life on. And this is all that's left of the Temple of Artemis or the Temple of Diana. We also heard about the amphitheater. Amphitheater, this is where the riot occurred, where... Uh, they took Gaius and Aristarchus into the amphitheater, right? And Paul wanted to go in there, and they, they blocked him from going out. This is the amphitheater. This is where they would have beasts uh, match up against other beasts. They would have man fight beasts. All of these things would happen in this amphitheater. It would hold anywhere from 25,000 to 50,000, some other uh, resources say, but massive place. Everybody would come to the amphitheater uh, to see, to be entertained. And if you, again, compare that with what we have in our modern day, we're going to the Angels game tonight. How many people are going to the Angels game? Anybody? Just a couple people? <laughs> I'd see what that was. It's like, I'm ashamed of the team, but I'm going. I get that. I, I get that. You got Otani, though. That's good. Um, uh, so, that's not on this slide. Um, back to this. Angel Stadium holds about 45,000 people. 45,000 people. So, if this holds 50,000 people, imagine something bigger than Angel Stadium, people filling that up to come see uh, entertainment for that day. Uh, Massive place. Uh, more, a, a lot of people came from all over to visit the amphitheater. What else do we need to know? Hall of Tyrannus. You'll see this in the book of Acts. Hall of Tyrannus. And so this is where Paul preached. This is where he taught people. Outside of his tent-making job, he would go set up shop here at the Hall of Tyrannus, and he would preach the gospel. And people would come day in and day out and, and learn from Paul. And they would ask Paul questions, and people were getting saved. People were getting converted right here at the Hall of of Tyrannus, big deal in the city of Ephesus. Paul took advantage of this place and uh, won many souls to Christ here at the Hall of Tyrannus. <clears throat> when we think about Scripture, a primary Scripture reference for the book of Ephesians or Ephesus, the city of Ephesus, excuse me, is exactly where we are in our weekend service. Right? We went through Acts 18 and, and 19. Uh, talks about Paul's time in Ephesus, and then uh, mostly in, in Acts 19 is filled with that. And then currently where we are now at the end of Acts 20, he's not in Ephesus, but he's in the island of Miletus. And so he's called the Ephesian elders to come to that island right outside of Ephesus that's called Miletus. And so right now this is where he is talking to the Ephesian elders before he departs from there. And so this is exactly where he is, right? We were talking about Ephesus. We're in the middle of Ephesus even in our weekend service. So great tie-in to help us understand it, this book as well. 
Let's talk about the church a little bit. Again, this is building up so you can understand the passage. You're not going to find this in the book of Ephesians, but this is going to help you understand the context of what Paul, who Paul was writing to and what they were dealing with during that current time. So let's talk about the church. Uh, the church, we need to know, was founded by Paul and Priscilla and Aquila right, during their uh, the missionary journey that they had there, the second missionary journey that they had. And we see that in eight, Acts 18, 18 through 21, right? He says, after this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave, leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. And with him, Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, Sincrae, he had cut his hair for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus and he left them there. But he himself went to the synagogues and reasoned with the Jews. Okay? When they asked him to stay longer period of time, he declined. But taking this leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. And so he started the church in Ephesus, right, around, uh, around A.D. 52, 53, right, or excuse me, uh, 51 is his first journey. And then he's going to spend the majority of their, his time there uh, on his next missionary journey uh, to um, Ephesus. But the first time that he goes there, um, he's there with Priscilla Aquila. They start the church, and Paul is off. He spends a brief period of time there. So I have these maps up here, and I, I didn't say this at the beginning, but you don't need to take pictures off. I will send this out this afternoon, so you'll get this whole slide that you can, I mean, this whole keynote that you can have. You can print it out, and you'll have all this information. You'll see the slides uh, and the maps and stuff a lot clearer on there. But if you take a look at this, uh, Paul's second missionary journey. And so this is the bold line that's going out up top through Asia all the way up to Macedonia, coming down here to Achaia. And we just talked about uh, uh, Corinth uh, and Sincrae right there in that time. So he was just there. Then he goes over to Ephesus, and then he's there for a brief period of time. But he leaves Priscilla and Aquila there, and then he's back down to Jerusalem where we get the Jerusalem uh, council happening during that time. But Paul was there quickly the first time. Second time around, or this is the third missionary journey that Paul goes out on. As you see down here, he takes the same route. He goes up towards Asia, but this time he goes straight down to Ephesus. You see the, top, the second missionary journey, he goes high. Now he goes straight to Ephesus, and this is where he spent a bulk of his time, right? Three, three years, which we'll see in just a second. But he go, from there, he goes up to Macedonia, down to Corinth area again, and then back around. And so now he's in Miletus, which, again, you can't see right now, but there's dotted lines. He's back in Miletus, and then he goes down to Jerusalem to end his third missionary journey. Um, but we know that Paul spent three-plus years, and the reason I put three-plus years is because right here in Acts 20, 31, he tells us that he spent three years. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease, night or day, to admonish everyone with tears. All right, so he's caring for this, this, this group of people, this church here in Ephesus. He's caring for them. He, he, he's pouring out his heart, right, in tears. He wants them to get and understand the gospel. He wants them to see the spiritual blessing that they have in Christ for three years, and then you tack on his, his previous brief time there, however long that was, and we have three-plus years that Paul spent in Ephesus, and that's going to be important uh, here uh, as we get to our next slide. I'll explain why. But as we think about the church, they had some heavy hitters. They had some big-time pastors in this church. Right, when we think about uh, where the church went and how it drifted, well, it wasn't because of lack of leadership. They had some big-time leaders. You, had, you were pastored by Paul. Paul sent Timothy there. And then tradition tells us at the end of Apostle John's life, before he got exiled, 
to the island of Patmos, he was in Ephesus, right? And he was pastoring the church in Ephesus in the 90s. And so you got big time pastors that are there. But 1 Timothy uh, 1, 3, 4, this reminds us that Paul sent Timothy there. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God, that is, by faith. So we see Paul was very uh, specific when he left Timothy there, and there was uh, an issue going on, right? An issue of what? Doctrinal drift. Again, this is the major religious hub uh, of the area. 50-plus religions there, magicians there, all of these things competing with people's faith. And so constantly, if you can imagine, they were having people walk in the doors trying to teach people different doctrines. Hey, you don't need to believe in that Christ thing, right? That Christianity thing, that, that life is too hard. You should probably believe in this goddess or God that we have over here. Right? They give you everything that you want in this life, right? And so you can imagine there was this constant pull and tug at their faith in Ephesus. And so Paul sends Timothy there to... Uh, not allow people to teach different doctrines or be swayed by that. That's the first attempt. We also see another example of this. Jesus talks about the church at Ephesus in Revelations 2, 1 through 4. This is what he said when he's writing to the seven, seven churches in Asia Minor. He says this, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right, the words of him who hold the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven gold lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false, right? He, he's encouraging them. I, I know you have this work, but keep reading. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. It's a good thing, right? But here's the charge that Jesus writes against them. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. You'd abandon the love, that love for Christ that you had, that was driving the way that you live, that was transforming your life for the gospel. You, you lost that. You lost that. And so maybe externally it was looking good because you were still trained up enough to do some Christ-like things, right, some churchy things, but, but you lost your first love. And even as we read that, it, it makes me think about our church. Right, those faithful Bible teaching churches, while we can sit here and say, yeah, we, you know, we, we read God's word, right? We, we're stay, we stay grounded in God's word. It's easy to stay grounded in God's word, have really good teachers, but then take a, take a drift over here. Because we get so wrapped up in the external and we forget the first love. We forget the reason why we're doing it. The reason why we do everything is for Jesus. The reason why we do everything is to glorify Jesus Christ. Not to give ourselves more attention, not to bring attention or favor or, or money to our own pockets. It's to bring glory to Jesus. He's the person that has given us everything. Everything that we have, every good and perfect gift, as we learned in James, comes from above. Right? And it's for God's glory and honor. So it should be given back to him. But this church, again, in a wealthy city, they got a lot of pressure around them. It's easy for them to lose their first love, and they did. As a matter of fact, I don't know if they repented right then or not, but eventually the church died in the second century. It died. The church was no longer around in the second century because it got gobbled up by the culture. It got gobbled up by the cares of the world. 
in Ephesus became the leading city for the councils of the Roman churches by the third century. Third and fourth century, Roman churches had taken over. Christianity is not around in the city of Ephesus, where it was booming with these major pastors that they had during the times. Last thing on the church that we need to know is mostly Gentiles with some Jews there too. Mostly Gentile converts. So they're coming from a lot of these pagan religions, but there's also Jews that are there that know a lot about, a lot about the Old Testament law. Same law which Paul came from. All right. So again, that's context that helps us understand everything that's going on. Let's talk a little bit about the book now. Background. Author tells us right there in our, our first verse, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Paul's the author. Uh, this gets, starts to get a little disputed later in the early 19th century, but I don't think there's much dispute there. Uh, there's a few reasons why. Again, Paul spent three years there. If you'll notice, this letter doesn't have any uh, personal contact. Even the book of Colossians, which he'd never been to Colossae, has names that he specifically calls out, and there's some intimacy with him knowing them. There's none of that in Ephesians, and so it becomes weird for a guy that spent three years there, right, T in tears. And then he kind of speaks in general terms throughout the book of Ephesians, never calling out a specific situation or a name. So that's why uh, you'll have people in the vocabulary that Paul uses here slightly different, but I don't think there's much argument there. Um, the author is Paul. He wrote this between 60 and 62. This is one of the four prison epistles that we have, along with Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. Um, but he's in a Roman prison writing to the church at Ephesus. Recipients. Uh, tells us this in, in verse 1 as well. It says, the saints who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Saints who are faithful in Christ Jesus. And the reason I skipped over two words is because those two words are in question. Uh, and this is what caused some controversy on who did he write it to. Because those words in Ephesus were not in the earliest and most trusted manuscripts. It, in fact, just read to the saints who are and are faithful in Christ Jesus. And so you have more manuscripts that enter Ephesus later on, but the original oldest manuscripts that we have, they don't have the words in Ephesus. And not a big deal, but it poses a question, was this truly to the Ephesian church? So that's where we get back to, Paul knows these people. He was there for three years, right, pouring out to these people, calling them to repentance and faith, but then he doesn't really speak, speak to specific issues. And so is he talking to the Ephesian church, or is this more of just a circular letter that Paul sends out to all the churches in that area? All the churches in that area, and it can apply to them. Uh, that, that's what putting in in Ephesus does or taking it out. I think it's more of a circular letter uh, because of the reason that I just stated. Paul spent so much time there, and to not call out anything specific, uh, it seems to me it's more of a circular letter. However, that doesn't change the reading of 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 this letter that doesn't change anything that it, it, it has to say in regards to the gospel. All of that still rings true. It's just a matter of just trying to think through, um, you know, who, who was Paul intending to write to. But for us, as we glean from this letter, doesn't doesn't make a difference. So why'd you say it? I don't, because I did. Just go with it. It's good for you to know. Letter carrier, Tychicus. Tychicus, it tells us this at the end of Ephesians 6. And then also, as I mentioned, the other prison epistle that's very similar to Colossians, he wrote this probably right around the same time, sent this out by Tychicus to deliver to these two um, these churches in this area. But you can see this right here, the very last verse, uh, verse 22 and verse 8, uh, identical. 
I sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts, right? Same thing in Colossians. So similar endings, exact same ending, uh, but we see that Tychicus was the one that took this letter from with Paul in, in the Roman prison out to these churches that he was writing to. Three purposes that I want to get to for this book. Um, the first one is, is to unite the church in Christ, right? To unite the church in Christ. Again, you have Jewish uh, Christians that are there, and you have Gentile Christians that are there. They're both coming in, bringing their baggage and their history from what they previously learned. And so as you can imagine, there's a fight, there's a battle, just like we see in Romans as well, for, hey, we should do things this way. This is what it really means to be in Christ. Oh, you still should get circumcised. Oh, you need to follow the law. Oh, no, we don't have to follow the law. And so there's this conflict there. And Paul's writing this letter to say, look, we need to be unified. There's a bigger battle outside the walls of these churches that we need to fight against as opposed to fighting against one another. And so part of the purpose of this letter is to unite the church, the body of Christ in Christ, to tell them what it means to be united, to get them to work together and not fight against each other. Uh, he also teaches very clearly and, and very plainly for us to see what it means to be in Christ. What is the gospel? We say the gospel, we talk about the gospel. Well, Paul spells it out beautifully in our passage, in our book, in um, Ephesians 1 through 3. Chapters 1 through 3, great explanation, great understanding of what it means to be in Christ, who we once were, and then, but God, in, because of God's grace and mercy, who we can now be in Christ and what our lives should live like, how our lives should live. And then that's the last purpose, is what does it look like to be in Christ? Or you have all these people that are bringing their ideas and their backgrounds, trying to figure it out. Paul sets it out plainly in Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, here's what a Christian life looks like. Here's some of the things, the ways your life should be transformed if you are in Christ. No longer your old self, but now the new person in Christ. We talk about uh, some of the highlights of Ephesians. And so if we just look at different areas of what Ephesians brings out, these are some of the highlights that um, I want us to capture. First thing, most important thing, it reveals God's ultimate plan of redemption and salvation in Christ. It reveals his ultimate plan. He calls it the mystery of his will, but it's all revealed out here in the book of Ephesians. And so we get an understanding that this was no surprise. This was no uh, like, okay, I got, I got to come up with a plan B because, you know, sin entered the world. I got to figure something else out. This is God's plan from the beginning. This is God's plan from, from the beginning to send his son to redeem mankind. So that we can have eternal life with him. But it must be only through him. And it's only by his grace. So it reveals God's ultimate plan of redemption for us and salvation in Christ. Tells us exactly how we can be saved. Tells us the means of salvation, as I just alluded to with the purpose. The means of salvation, by grace. Only by grace. Has nothing to do with you has nothing to do with your bank account, has nothing to do with your zip code, has nothing to do with how many good things you thought you've done, only by grace. And he tells us he's done this before the foundation of the world. So before you could even do something, before you could even mess up, before you could even do something that you think was good, God had all of this planned out. The sovereign God had all of this planned out by grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, right? Not, not a result of work so that no one may boast. But then here's what we oftentimes leave off when we quote Ephesians 2, 8, 9, is, is verse 10. So once you're saved, here's the reason that you're saved. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. 
for good works. Not good works previous to salvation. Once you are saved in Christ, God's ha- he has some good works lined up for you to further glorify him, to build his church. Good works, which God prepared beforehand, again, that we should walk in them. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. That's it. Showcases regeneration. I love this about the book of Ephesians, especially Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, probably my favorite passage of scripture because it spells out the gospel. It allows us to know exactly who we were, right? We, 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 were, we, were, we were wicked, we were evil, you know, destined for wrath like the rest of mankind. And then my favorite two words in the Bible are Ephesians 2, 4. It says, but God, <laughs> but God. Here's who we were, but God. Not but God and everything that we tried, to, but God being rich in mercy, right? That's the only reason, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love which with, he, which with he loved us, right? We can be saved. We can have eternal life with God, but God. That's the only reason why. And then he showcases what our life should look like in Christ. And he gives us this, and here's an example in Ephesians 4, 28 and 29. Let the thief no longer steal, right? You were out stealing before. You were out stealing, robbing people all for yourself. Here's what you should do now in Christ. But rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. Why? To build up your storehouses? No, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. You see that? Not only do you go from stealing, stealing and doing things to to fatten your own pockets, to to build your own material wealth. Now God is saying, in Christ, you're going to work hard. You're going to work hard not to fatten your own pockets, not to to, to store up your own wealth, but you're going to do that so you can provide for other people in the body of Christ. That's an amazing transformation. Amazing. Only through God's grace. You don't do that transformation on your own, only with a regenerated heart, regenerated heart. Regeneration has to happen. Here's another thing. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such is good for building up as it fits the occasion that may give grace to those who hear. Some of us in here this morning need to hear that. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, right? You're in Christ. So the talk that should come out of your mouth shouldn't tear people down, but it should be building people up. So that they can glorify Christ more. We need a lot more of that. Showcases regeneration. What we should be doing in Christ. What a, what a uh, Christ-filled life looks like. It also provides God's plan for the church. Right? The mystery of his will. The whole plan for the church is to glorify him. It's the bride of Jesus Christ. And God's going to get his glory through all of us. The church, big C, not just this church, little C, Compass Bible Church, but all of the Christians across the planet, the universal church, God has a plan for all of us to serve, to lead, to be involved, to help build his church and give him all the glory. It reveals marriage being about Christ and the church. Christ and the church. Most people think about marriage is about them and what they, what they want to do out of life or what they want their wife to do or happy wife, happy, all that other stuff. It ain't about that. It ain't about that at all. Marriage is a picture of the gospel. Marriage is a picture of husband who represents Jesus and wife who represents the church coming together as one, being unified. That's what your marriage is all about. It's about bringing glory to Jesus. That's what your marriage is about, and that's what he reveals for us in chapter 5. We quote that uh, in marriage counseling and premarital, all that stuff, but it's really about the mystery of the church and 
salvation in Jesus Christ. Lastly, shows us how to stand against the devil. He shows us how to stand against the devil in chapter 6. We're all in spiritual warfare. We're all in a war. I talked about that uh, in previous men's breakfast. We are in a war right now, men. Right? We're going to have our conference about that, the war on men. There is a war going on right now. If you call yourself a Christian, there is a war that you are in. The question is, do you know that? Do you realize you're in a war? Because you can't see it, right? It's a spiritual warfare. You can't see it. It's not in front of you, but it's coming in every different direction. And Ephesians tells us how to prepare ourselves for that. Not just prepare ourselves, how to be victorious. Because this battle is already won. But we still must walk through it. And so he tells us that in chapter 6. Big highlight that you and I should glean from to understand and be prepared for the schemes of the devil. Let me give you the the structure of the book. It's laid out really nicely. It would be really helpful uh, to know this, to have this. Uh, even I would recommend printing this out uh, that I'm about to show you uh, just to keep with you as you study through the book of Ephesians so you know where we have been and where, what, what's coming up uh, throughout the book and you can connect it to where we currently are. But as I've alluded to, chapters 1 through 3, the story of the gospel. It's about the gospel. It's a doctrinal section. It's about teaching what the gospel is, what it means to be in Christ. The second part of it, how does that show up in your life? How do you live the gospel out? Right, what what transformation happens in your life. He breaks that down. Those are the two sections. Within that, you have these different chapters, and and I've taken these titles within these chapters directly from your ESV Bible. So you'll see these as headings in the passage, and it just helps you understand what that particular section is. So these are, are right in your Bible, so you don't have to even, you can look these up later or see them later. Verses 3 through 14, we'll spend our time next week and the next two weeks in this, the spiritual blessing in Christ. So Paul paints out what the spiritual blessing is that we have in Christ, the, 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 the vast blessing that you have more than any other religion could even, even think about, right? You have that in Christ. It's a spiritual blessing that you and I have been given and, and adopted to before the foundations of the world, right? God has laid all of this out. Before the foundations of the world, spiritual blessing in Christ. And then he gives thanksgiving and prayer. And part of his prayer is that the, 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 the Ephesians and those in that area, that they would see this. That God would reveal it to them, that they would have eyes to see the, the majesty of the gospel, of God's grace that he's given them. Chapter 2, we talked about already, verses 1 through 10. By grace through faith. By grace through faith. You want to give somebody the gospel to read? I love giving this passage out. Just read that, meditate on that. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, right? Tells us the story of the gospel, who we once were, but God, verse 4 starts with that, and then he tells us who we are in Christ and the riches that we have in Christ. And then he talks about being one in Christ, taking these, these Gentiles who were once far away, he says, once far away, and then now being brought into God's, adopted, God's family through adoption, through Jesus Christ. Right? We're all one in Christ. Jews, Gentiles, we're all one in Christ. Ends chapter 2. And then he gets into chapter 3. He talks about the mystery of the gospel. And that God has uh, revealed this mystery that was a mystery throughout the whole Old Testament. God has revealed that to Paul so that he may shed light to all that he sees and preach the gospel for them that they can see it clearly now. So Paul is an um, ambassador of the gospel he talks about and a gift that God has given him to share 
the good news that has now been revealed. And then he gives prayer, prayer again for spiritual strength. Because guess what? It's not going to be easy, but he wants them to have spiritual strength. And then verse chapter 4 starts off with, I therefore. So therefore, with all of that being said, the story of the gospel, here's how you live it out. Here's how you live it out. And he talks about that in chapter 4. You get the unity of the body of Christ. Again, all of us should be one in Christ. In this specific section, he keeps using that word, one, 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 one. You see it all throughout. Everybody should be one in Christ. We should all be unified. All right, unified. We all have different gifts. We all are going to be used in different ways. So there's, it's not uniformed, but unified. Unified, we're all one, but we're not all uniform acting, leading towards one. We're leading towards one thing, but we're being used in different ways to build up the body of Christ, unity in the body of Christ. And then he talks about the new life. Again, what the new life should look like in Christ and examples of that transformation. And then he tells us that we should uh, imitate Jesus, right? All that we do, we, sh- we need to walk in love. So all, everything that you do, all the actions need to be wrapped up in love. And then these next two sections, he gives us uh, the transformation that we should have in these relationships because of the gospel, because of God's grace. And that should come in your marriage. That should come in how you parent. That should come in, in, in your work, right? Again, we're talking about work nowadays. He's talking about bond service and masters because that's what they're dealing with uh, during that time. But same thing, how you treat your boss or if you, you have employees, how you treat your employees. It should, it should shine light to Jesus Christ because of the way that he loved us. And then he finishes up with the whole armor of God, right? Everything that I just told you, it's not going to be easy. You, you, need to, you need to wear the armor of God. Put on the armor of God, the whole armor, every part of it. You got to do that every day because guess what? There's going to be an opposition out there in everything that you do. None of this is going to come easy. And he prepares us with that for the ending, the whole armor of God. Here's one reminder that I want to give you. Obviously, I'll give you reminders all throughout. But here's the big reminder that you and I need to have. Uh, Ephesians is for you. Ephesians is for you. Why do I say that? Because the tendency that we have, especially when we get in chapter 1 and chapter 2, is when you hear the gospel, you're going to think, i got to give this to that person. This is good. i got to give that sermon. i got to give this passage to somebody. That's for you. When we talk about the gospel, the gospel is not a one-time transaction. The gospel is something that you and I should be thinking about every single day. Every single day that should be part of our prayer and to help us live out the gospel. Because the second we start to think it's a transaction of, oh, that's old news, that's for somebody that needs to be in Christ, then we forget God's love for us. We forget that our whole life is about Jesus. Right? The only reason we were saved, we were adopted, we were redeemed is because God had good works that he had set up beforehand for us to continue to build the church. And so as we go through chapters 1 and 2, it's not for you to think about, ah, I got, what, what about that person? What about the, it's for you to wrestle with that and to think how kind God was, how much grace that he had to save you, how wicked we still are in Christ, but he has forgiven us. You have been justified through the blood of Jesus Christ. Ephesians is for you. The gospel is for you. You and I need to meditate on that daily, and it'll, it'll, it'll remind us how much love we should be giving towards Christ Jesus in everything that we do. The gospel is for you. Ephesians is for you. If you're a non-Christian here, understanding that this is for you. This is an opportunity where you get to, to, to study through probably one of the, the clearest presentations of the gospel that we have in the Bible lays it out clear that once you put your, your, your life in Christ, he becomes the Lord and Savior of your life, there, there, there's eternity waiting for you. 
It's not about this life. It's about the next life. There's an eternity waiting for you. But guess what? There's a job to be done to build his church here. But it's the greatest gift that anyone could give is the gift of salvation that God has given us by his grace alone. And so this book, if you haven't surrendered your life to, to, to Christ, do that now. And then reap, listen to this book and reap all the, the, the blessings and, 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 and be able to hear all of the blessings that you have being in Christ more than anything else in this world. And then lastly, of course, Ephesians is for you as we think about the spiritual battle that we're in. We think about the spiritual battle. We need to understand that there is a battle. We need to be reminded. This is not for you to, again, send to somebody else. This is not for you when you think about the transformation or, or when, when Ephesians 4 tells us that, that, that we need to forgive. It's not for you to be like, I'm going to send this to my wife. No, you need to forgive, right? This is for you. So before you let it bounce off of you and think about somebody else, let, let it meditate with you. Let it work on you. Because if you let it work on you, then God's going to do a great work in your life for his glory. But let it work on you before you kick it to someone else. Quickly, let me run through this. Uh, getting the most out of this study. If you want to get the most out of this study, th then you can. By God's grace, you can. But it's going to require some effort on your end. It's going to require you to sacrifice some of the things that pop up on your schedule. And the first thing I have here is consistency. Attend, be here weekly. What pains my heart semester after semester is we have a, a great full room like this on day one. But then come October and November, excuses creep in. And then this room shrinks and shrinks and shrinks. Don't let that happen, guys. Don't let that be you. Because guess what? You're going to have something that's going to come up that's going to compete for this time. Don't let that happen. This is the most important thing you could be doing at this hour. I can say that because not a lot is open, not a lot is going on. This is the most important thing. And I can say that because we're studying God's word. That's the most important thing that you can have in your life. Don't let it happen. May that not be the case with this group. May this room be even more full by the time we get to the end of the semester because you're inviting other guys in. You're telling them they, they need to hear this. They need to be here to study God's word and have their life transformed. Attend weekly. Stay plugged into your group. Prayer requests, connect with the guys. If you meet your guys this today, stay connected with them. If you don't stay connected, it'll be so easy to drift off. All right, but if you stay connected, you stay plugged in, meeting, connecting with your guys outside of even today, outside of Friday morning, you'll, you'll, you'll be plugged in and you'll get more out of this group than just sitting on the si sidelines. Preparation. Study, 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 study beforehand. Don't just allow my preaching, Lord knows, don't just allow my preaching to be the only studying that you have. Don't. Study the passage on your own. Read a trusted commentary on your own. Come to this, 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 this Friday morning already knowing the passage, have studying the passage, and let this just be an addition to that that can help you learn the passage more. Use trusted commentaries. Again, you'll, you'll get all these, so I'll go by, them, go by pretty quickly. Logos, if you don't have that, if you have a computer or laptop that you use, download Logos. There's a free version on there. So good to have. ESV Study Bible, MacArthur Study Bible. Some of you had that. Um, this uh, Tyndale Commentary Series. Um, all of your leaders uh, have this along with myself. These are all that, all that I use as well as commentaries. Um, the, the, the Pillar New Testament Commentary Series is here too. I'll send these out. You don't have to write them down. Uh, John MacArthur has, it's the same thing as a study Bible, but it, it's just in the commentary form, book on Ephesians. 
Uh, and then also the B series. I love this one, Warren Wiersbe. Um, if you were with Focal Point, you got this about the book of Job. Uh, he has one for every book of the Bible, but the B series, very um, obviously the commentary uh, is rich, and then also it gives you good application for how to apply this as well. Uh, and like I said, work through the passages. You get the questions a week in advance, work through the questions. And guess what? For some reason, if you had a heavy week and you're like, man, I could only get to one, or maybe I got to none, still come. There's so much that you can glean just from the conversation. But the more you put into this, as far as studying and the questions, the more your entire group is going to benefit because you're going to bring more things to the table that's going to edify us all. So study. Be plugged in. Stay committed to this study. And challenge yourself. Memorize some of these passages. The Bible Memory app is great. It's just great to memorize God's word. It never comes back void. Memorize it. Think about it. Dwell is a way you can listen to it um, as well. The Dwell app um, is out there, and it'll read it to you. If you don't want to read, it'll read it to you, uh, but you should read. Going deeper in your study, here's a couple uh, books that I have. Uh, these are in our bookstore, too. Uh, Jerry Bridges, Who Am I? And then Respectable Sin, also by Jerry Bridges. This is great to go through as we go through chapters 1 through 3 um, because he talks about who am I, and again, the, what Paul spells out is the gospel story, and so it lines up greatly with chapters 1 through 3. And then Respectable Sins is one of my favorite books. Um, I haven't even gotten all the way through it, but I've already touted it as one of my favorite books um, by Jerry Bridges. It's great for uh, chapters 4 through 6, remembering uh, that life transformation, remembering how much God hates sin and how much we should hate it as well. Uh, but those are two good books that we have in our bookstore. If you're going to read it, um, you can have one of these. You can come up to me right after. I'll gift it to you. Uh, but you have to read it and write an essay. No, I'm just kidding. Just read it. <laughs> Commit to me you'll read it because if you're just going to put it on your shelf, then I'll give it to somebody else that's going to read it. Um, and then most important thing, prayer. Prayer that you would love Christ more, that you would understand his word, uh, and that you would grow spiritually. Pray that prayer uh, often, weekly. When you come here, when you're thinking about it, we need that to happen um, for you to grow uh, as God has has set forth for you to grow in your life. You can do that, that growing now uh, as we go through the book of Ephesians. I want to end with this quote by Martin Luther. Love this quote. It says, when I look at myself, I don't see how I can be saved. All right, when I look at me, I, it's wicked. I don't, I don't see how there's any possible way I can be saved. But then this is what he says. But when I look at Christ, I don't see how I can be lost. But just looking at myself and my own doing, uh-uh. It's nothing good in here. But when I look at Christ, he shows me every way. He shows me perfection. I don't see how I can be lost. Ephesians will make you love Christ more. Ephesians will make you love Christ more. It will increase your desire to please him in everything that you do. Right? You and I need to be committed and be ready to do that this semester. And if you're committed and ready to do that this semester... My prayer is for all of us that we would grow in our knowledge of God, we would grow in our love for God more than we've ever grown in our entire life this semester. And God can make that happen. But I want you guys to be committed. I want you to be here. I want you to study God's word. And let's see the great fruit and blessings that God has in store for us. Let's pray. God, thank you for this book. Thank you for these men. Thank you for this time that we get together here this morning to start our day. I pray that it would be fruitful all semester long. Use your word to guide our, our steps. Use your word to, to cause us to love you more and live for you more in our life than we're doing right now. 
use this book to, to, to save men. You know, in a room like this, I can't imagine everyone is saved, but I pray that you would, uh, you would bring souls to Christ through this book. And I pray that you would encourage and edify souls, that you would make sanctification happen through every person in this room as we study through this. Lord, we pray that that would be the case and that you would use us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.